0: Thank you. Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded November 8th, 2023. Well, a tapestry of Pablo Picasso's haunting Guernica hangs mutely in the foyer of the United Nations Security Council, the 25-by-11-foot recreation of the Spanish artist's Cree de cour, recalling the ruthless bombing of civilians in that Basque town in 1937, had served as backdrop for press conferences in that august body until February 3rd, 2003, when, fearing life imitating art in the form of George Bush's coming shock and awe destruction, of Baghdad, the U.N. custodians of decorum covered it from the cameras, preemptively shielding Secretary of State Colin Powell from any embarrassment the image might cause America and its accomplices as he laid forth his bogus casus belli for the Second Iraq War. While well, the blitzkrieg of Guernica, inspiring Picasso so long ago, has been reenacted daily in Gaza for the last month, with many times more men, women, children, and animals killed, injured, made homeless, and Traumatized, thousands are dead, hundreds of thousands wounded, but the great resistance feared by Bush and his clack way back when is apparently not a worry for current leaders of the Western world who remain unanimous and unapologetic in their support of Israel and its project for the new Israel despite the horrendous cost. William S. Geimer is a peace activist, professor emeritus of law at Washington and Lee University, military veteran who resigned his 82nd Airborne Commission in opposition to the war against Vietnam, and author of the book Canada, the case for staying out of other people's wars. In 2020, Bill founded the Greater Victoria Peace School, which he he says, has since his retirement, quote, been a success, and my board members are carrying on admirably with peace education. William S. Geimer in the first half. And most here have probably forgotten entirely about Guantanamo Bay Prison, set up so long ago to confine the worst of the worst in George Bush Jr.'s global war on terror. Incredibly, all these years later, prisoners still languish there without the benefit of the protection of laws that were once the pride of Western civilization. Andy Worthington remembers, though, and more. He's been working all these years to both publicize the plight of those held and get them real justice. Andy Worthington and remembering Guantanamo in the second half. But first, Bill Geimer and the Gaza atrocity happening before our eyes. Well, welcome back to the program, Bill. Good to be here. Well, it's great to speak with you. You know, and somehow, Bill, four and a half years have gotten behind us since we last talked. And I listened yesterday to that discussion we had in 2019 following the UVic Symposium, Human Rights in Israel and Palestine, Canada's Response and Responsibility. And everything we said could stand today as nothing we talked about then was addressed on the national political level here in Canada since that time. Bill, can we begin with the crimes being committed in Palestine right now and the complicity of this Canadian government in them?
1: Yes, we can, Uh, especially the complicity part. But uh, I want to talk about uh, the complicity of my fellow Canadians. Uh, We are quite used to uh, blaming our... Government and rightly so, but we still have some semblance of a uh, democracy here, I suppose. So I, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the uh, complicity of uh, ordinary Canadians in what what is happening. But if you'll permit me first to say that I'm honored to uh, share time with Andy and be reminded of uh, Guantanamo, lest we forget. Uh, I have friends and colleagues who have represented detained prisoners there. Uh, And in my book, uh, I wrote of Omar Cotter, the 15-year-old Canadian child soldier, unjustly imprisoned at Gitmo for 12 years. Uh, And he is a soldier that I will remember on Saturday. This is a tough time for those of us who are permanently committed to nonviolence. Uh, because the times are toughest when there's a conflict between oppressors and oppressed. Uh, and Israel has been killing and displacing Palestinians for decades, uh, arrogantly, in view of the world, full view of the world uh, community. But 54 years ago, I learned from Joan Baez uh, that there is no good violence and bad violence our violence, and their violence. There's only violence, and it's all bad. And it's this truth that aggravates Canadian complicity in the crimes of Israel and tempts all of us to support our violence. Uh, But difficult as it is, that truth remains. And for me, just some examples. The brutal attack by Hamas was not only a crime, it was stupid. It was stupid because it gave Israel the excuse for continuing the ethnic cleansing that Israel has desired for years and is revealed by a recently leaked intelligence document. Uh, The plan there is for those Palestinians who are fortunate enough not to be among the thousands of civilians, women and children who are killed, to be forcibly relocated, continuing a policy begun way back in 1948. It's stupid. It was stupid because the predictably vicious response it provoked from Israel makes it much more difficult for peacemakers who want to see Israel abandon violence, end apartheid, and cease being an outlaw state and just become a responsible member of the world community and to move toward a just and fair one-state solution. This conflict makes that much more difficult for us. And it was stupid because it does not include a realistic plan to improve the lives of Palestinians. The rage of Palestinians and the rage of Hamas is understandable the violence is stupid and destructive as violence always is and, and and by the way the brutal response of israel that far exceeds the violence of hamas was also stupid it has resulted in a massive anti-semitic violence wave almost everywhere and there was already enough anti-semitism and jews around the world have israel to thank for this latest uptick so uh, having Said that, why do Canadians either ignore or support Israel's murder of civilians, including thousands of children? And this is just my view, but over a long period of time, I think it's because Canadians do not yet grasp the concept of accountability for crimes committed on their behalf and in their names. And I think, you know, I spent a number of years as a law professor and uh, uh, law professors are prone to use hypothetical examples to make points about the real world. So permit me if it's okay, uh, I'd like to offer a hypothetical to explain what I mean by uh, Canadians not grasping the concept of their accountability, their complicity for crimes committed on their behalf and in their names. suppose you have uh, come to hate a neighbor uh, and he doesn't live next door, rather some distance away, but in the same development with you. You've received repeated reports from sources you rely on that that your neighbor is an evil person who's a threat to you, your children, and everyone in the area. Uh, Your neighborhood governing council decides that this evil person should be killed. And the council approves a a special voluntary levy to purchase weapons, come up with a plan, and eliminate the evil neighbor and his entire family. And you willingly pay the levy and remain silent on the plan. And the question then is, are you responsible to any degree for the ensuing death of the neighbor, his wife and his children? Does that sound bizarre? I suppose it does. It sounds quite bizarre. But my fellow Canadians, that is exactly what you are ignoring or supporting on a national scale.
0: Uh, can i pick up on the ga- on uh, hamas uh, stupid they may be their their goals we don't know for sure although they've made some indication of what they had in mind but w- was it illegal of what they did breaking out of the prison that they're in and attacking military bases and yeah they there was people uh, civilians that were uh, caught in the crossfire that were targeted that were kidnapped as well during the course of this by both sides incidentally the uh, IDF, uh, their um, Hannibal directive is, uh, says that, that they should kill people rather than allow them be uh, kill Israelis rather than allow them be taken hostage, which they did in great numbers, but we don't hear much about that. But what about the legality of what Hamas did? What Hamas did? Well, I did not uh, yeah, there is such a flood
1: of comparisons between their brutality and our brutality, depending upon what side you're on, that I really uh chose not to speak about that because to me it's self evident uh there are there is a body of international law fortunately that condemns killing civilians uh in armed attacks and uh Hamas and Israel. Uh, pretty well disregard that. There's no legality to what Hamas did, in my view. Now, I have already, it's funny that you used, one, one term you used, I have used, uh, this whole business of, of labeling everybody as terrorists. And uh, in an exchange with someone recently, I said, you know, I never saw when Israeli settlers murdered innocent uh, Palestinian farmers. I never heard them referred to as terrorists. Uh, so uh, I would like uh, to see an end to this referring to a terrorist attack. It was more, I said, like a violent jailbreak uh, from the world's one of the world's largest outdoor prisons, larger even than Guantanamo. In my view, there is no justification for killing civilians. Uh, if you are engaged in a military operation uh, and there is a risk that uh, you're going to kill civilians, uh, much less that's part of the plan, just a risk, then you cancel the operation. Uh, that's what the law provides. And I don't see it being done on either side in this tragic kind, which is not to say that there is any sort of equivalence. Israel has had no sense of proportionality when it comes to everybody adopting violence. Israel has had no sense of proportionality for forever that I have ever seen.
0: And proportionality, Bill, we should explain. That's not just a a term. That's a legal concept.
1: Yeah, yeah. but, But it's funny because it's also a Judaic concept the biblical command, an eye eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a limitation on violence, no more than an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Uh, You don't dismember someone or kill them uh, in response to their violence, their violence putting out your eye. That's Uh, that's what the Israelis have ignored or forgotten about, uh, for years. And it is a concept that translate, you're right, has translated into the concept of proportionality in international law.
0: Yeah. And that's, and that is obviously being transgressed here many, many, many times over. Uh, but, uh, we'll get into a little bit more about israel's reaction but before we do it's everybody that talks about this talks about hamas and what they did and then that is the frame of reference for everything that follows the discussion as if nothing came before october 7th uh, the years and years under which uh, palestinians have been oppressed and killed and unjustly imprisoned there's thousands of Israelis, or of Palestinians, rather, in Israeli prisons right now, men, women, and even children uh, under uh, administrative detention, without trial, without evidence being presented, without any hope or no- knowledge of when they might be released, similar to Guantanamo Bay. Much of what Hamas has said, the reasoning for what they did was, was to capture Israeli soldiers and whoever, uh, citizens, obviously. And use them as bargaining chips to get women and children and their compatriots released from detention in Israeli uh, detention right now, so that's just one of the things that Hamas has said, and and I don't mind speaking that up. Everyone who talks about this says, "I don't want to be an apologist for Hamas. I'm not apologizing for Hamas when I say that, but I'm trying to understand what their what their reasoning and what their aims and goals were beyond saying it was just stupid. They had to know, as you said, it was predictable the Israeli reaction, but they did it anyway. In the, given the situation in Hamas, there's been UN reports year after year saying that right in 2020, that Gaza would be unlivable. Then there was in 2021 Gaza would be unlivable every year. They say, Oh, by, by the next year, they won't, there won't life. It will be impossible because of the conditions there with bad water and everything else, uh, uh, the embargo of medicines and so forth. So I guess that my question is not to justify anybody, but to understand that Hamas, it seems, took this drastic course of action because they felt something had to move. And this was the only way to get it to move. I want to go back to a point of agreement that I have with you.
1: Uh, And I think you you really uh, I'm I'm so glad that you said I don't want to defend. I want to understand. Uh, And uh, there's a lot that is. Uh, not being understood and you made a point uh, that I'd like to uh, emphasize and agree with you on the uh, and my position as I said is that that the violence of Hamas is understandable but strategically tactically and and in terms of getting anything it was stupid that doesn't mean that a concern for those who have been uh unlawfully imprisoned, the Israeli host- held hostages uh, for years are not a legitimate matter of concern. And I'm always interested when uh, we talk about ceasefires or, in this case, freeing the hostages, and they're talking about hostages held by uh, Hamas, that uh, first of all, you have a bunch of right-wingers uh, saying, well, don't talk to them at all. And then the freeing becomes a negotiation in which you release all the hostages and I give you nothing. Uh, And negotiation doesn't work that way. Uh, Every time I hear of a negotiation, I want to know what one side is willing to give up as well as the other. So hostages are not going to be freed probably until some of the hostages held by Israel uh, are freed. Part of the
0: understanding is understanding negotiation. Hamas did uh, release a a few hostages, and they made overtures, overtures that were ignored. But I wonder, Bill, if right now Canada uh, has long made, uh, has been proud of itself for uh, bringing into the world the so-called R2P, a responsibility to protect. In this sense, does Hamas not have a responsibility, given Israel, the reaction of Israel Uh, The unrestrained reaction, really, of Israel, even while hostages are held, but the realistic fear that once hostages are not there, that that onslaught by Israel will be magnified even more, rather than getting anything. All they'll get is Israeli bombs in double time. Uh, Does Hamas not have a responsibility not to release those uh, those hostages to protect the people in Gaza? I would say that... Uh, that, that, and I, by the
1: way, I will, it's for another time and another program. I had high hopes for the doctrine of responsibility to protect, uh, until the U.S. bamboozled the U.N. into Libya. But I will, my, my thought about your comment is that, uh, Hamas should not release the hostages until it gets something back. What that gets, what that retur- return is uh, would be, you know, up to the parties. But there's nothing unreasonable about what you have said. And if I were a bargaining person, I, would, I might begin by saying this status is not going to change until you quit bombing our, you know, our people.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and I think that's probably something that's on the table right now. Uh, I hope so, but watching Western media, you know, you you can't see what that uh, position would be uh, because all you see is either uh, don't talk to these evil people or just make it a one-way deal. Uh, they must release uh, and get nothing back. And I think uh, if I could, I'm I'm not going to spend as much time as I had planned, but going back to why Canadians sit by and either support or just let this happen. I think you know that my position is that Western propaganda plays a tremendous part. Propaganda is how we, as Canadians, decide not to get involved. You, you will not find any Canadians in the grocery store line who are... Uh, You know, willing to say, boy, I I support uh, the Canadian, US, uh, Israeli killing of thousands of children. But you will find a bunch of people in the grocery line who don't want to talk about it. Uh, And that is a result of propaganda that goes back to so many uh, wars and, yeah, the, the, I thought the, the last major one was selling the lie that Canadian forces went to Afghanistan to build schools for girls. Uh, that was the last flag I had that, uh, that said, uh, beware of propaganda. I, my concern is, is my fellow Canadians, because if their support disappears, then the country as a whole changes course and we don't become complicit in the crimes uh, of Israel. And everybody has propaganda. Hamas certainly has propaganda,
0: but but Hamas is not speaking on my behalf and in my name. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with William S. Geimer. Bill is a peace activist. He's a professor emeritus of law at Washington and Lee University, military veteran, and he resigned his uh, 82nd Airborne Commission in opposition to the war against Vietnam, and came to Canada to become a Canadian citizen and live here among us. And he's been here ever since. His book, Canada: The Case for Staying Out of Other People's Wars, uh, is timely even yet after how many years since you've written it, Bill? Uh, and he I'm also really sorry
1: that it is still timely.
0: It came out in early
1: two twenty seventeen, and uh, as I was looking back over some of the propaganda things today. And looking back over the Guantanamo section uh, of the book, I, I, I again felt regret that so many things are are still uh, timely. If I have just a moment, I want to close or at least come to, to mention what I think, wh- where do ordinary Canadians go from here uh, and, and how do we speak to them? I, and one of, the, one of the things you can do when you're just frustrated – is to donate, find a place, and give what money that you can. And my choices, as far as Israel is concerned, uh, is an organization called Combatants for Peace, CFPeace.org, and American Friends of Combatants for Peace, AFCP.org. These are Palestinian and Israeli veterans. Uh, working who oppose the occupation, uh, who are working for peace and uh, great groups. And of course, uh, worldbeyondwar.org uh, is a great place to put your money. Uh, I, second, I would say don't be afraid to speak respectfully but forcefully to your fellow Canadians about their complicity. Uh, and about the seed, the need for a ceasefire, and the need for peace. Uh, and I've learned over the years that you can start with other subjects. You don't have to say what about Israel and to someone in the grocery line, uh, but you can talk about the allocation of resources. Uh, and as a uh, retired, Barrister, I can also say that the best way to do this is by asking questions. Start. You can start with grocery prices, and you will get to the multi billions of dollars being wasted. Regardless of the of the human rights violations, there are many ways to talk with our fellow Canadians, uh, and I encourage us to give what money we can. Uh, and not to be afraid to talk to our fellow Canadians.
0: Well, yeah, well, what the effects of all this are having on our societies as well, and we've seen country after country uh, in the G7 uh, change their laws to make them uh, less and less democratic, France uh, and England, and uh, making it uh, illegal to to show the Palestinian flag, much as it was illegal in Israel years ago. And uh, there was an arrest in Calgary uh, yes. Just just recently, of somebody that was uh, uh, intoning the chant from the river to the sea, which we hear at these demos that have been huge all over the world, uh, somebody was arrested for that because that they the charge interpreted that as being a a threat, an anti-Semitic threat. Uh, I want to mention too before we go though, Bill, that people can also get involved with an organization that you founded, the Greater Victoria Peace School. Can you yeah. tell us uh what that is and how people can uh, get involved in the work they're doing? Uh the Greater Victoria Peace School, it's just peacchool
1: uh, dot org, when a summer course uh in Victoria was a co-sponsor of the Hiroshima. Nagasaki observance here. Uh, uh, we have a board member of Japanese descent uh, who is a marvelous uh, person. And we had a uh, a lecture series over last fall, a series of workshops. And one of them was led by a noted author and peace activist, Mary Wynn Ashford, who Tragically died shortly after uh, making this great presentation that she gave. And Mary Wynn had put together a series of, of uh, instructional videos in peace education. And what the board is carrying on with now that I, uh, that I have retired, uh, is to update and modify in Mary Wynn's honor. Her series and get it into secondary school curricula all across the greater Victoria area. And they're having success with that, although uh, they are doing something that I would rather have a root canal than do, which <laughs> is to fight their way through the school bureaucracy uh, in order to get uh, this course uh, into uh a secondary school curriculum, but they'll get it done, and so that's just an example of what uh, the Greater Victoria Peace School uh, is doing. There's always something yeah, that we this. can that we can do.
0: Yeah, that's like my mother used to say. There's always something, but I, I think she was meaning something else. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, PeaceSchool.org, cfpeace.org, afcfpeace.org, World Beyond War. They do great stuff. David uh, Swanson being a frequent guest in the past, at least on this show. I'll, I'll put those links, Bill, in at uh, the, my website, guerrilla hyphen radio.com, where this program, one of the places this program will appear and people can link to that. Uh, Bill, we're fast out of time and there's so much more that we could talk about as usual. Um, uh, our, Foreign Minister uh, Melanie Jolie, or Genocide Jolie, as I like to call her, uh, was presenting in front of the G7 today, their meeting in Asia, uh, I believe it is. And she, she announced that the G7 countries are, quote, united in our condemnation of Hamas's terror, our support of humanitarian pauses. In Gaza, whatever that means, and our support for Ukraine and that that continuing war. So uh, the, the, it's simmering, but not yet extinguished. There, the, Jolie is hoping that that will continue. I, I expect, Bill. It's a joy to speak with you. Let's not wait four and a half years uh, before speaking again, eh? No, definitely not. And thank you for all for all your work. It's just been great to get reunited again. Likewise. Uh, and I want everyone to stick around after the break. Andy Worthington's going to be up and we're going to talk about his 20 year, 20 plus year odyssey, uh, trying to get Guantanamo closed and justice for those held there. Uh, and it's still going on all these years later. Thanks again, Bill. My pleasure. <laughs> Moscow, Tokyo, New York. Guerrilla Radio is everywhere at guerrilla-radio.com. Everywhere, all the time. Welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. While most of us uh, have probably forgotten entirely about Guantanamo Bay Prison, set up so long ago to confine the worst of the worst in George Bush's, uh, George Bush Jr.'s global war on terror. Incredibly, all these years later, prisoners still languish there without the benefit of the protection of laws that were once the pride of Western civilization. Andy Worthington remembers, though, and more. He's been working all these years to both publicize the plight of those held and get them real justice. Well, last week he attended in London one of the 10 coordinated global vigils for the closure of Guantanamo. He reminds 16 of the 30 men still held after having been are still held there after having been approved for release uh, as of November 1st between 404 and 531 days more now andy welcome back to the program
2: thanks chris it's always a pleasure to talk to you
0: well yeah you will see about that
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> your article andy up at your website uh, photos and report the coordinated global vigils for the call co- uh, for the closure of Guantanamo on november 1st 2023 uh, that's up at andyworthington.co.uk. Well, firstly then andy uh what are these vigils and, and who is the uh, coordinating hand behind them
2: okay so the vigils really came out of um vigils that we've we've been holding um in london since last september And they themselves are a kind of revival of um, of vigils that used to take place in London for many years earlier in Guantanamo's history with some incredibly energetic people who used to meet outside Parliament once a week. Um, Well, that wasn't feasible, but we thought, well, once a month is a good idea. So we started doing it last September. Then in January this year, of course, it was the anniversary, the 21st anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo. So, you know, there's a lot of action around that time around the world. And then I thought, well, we need to try and keep this going. So I suggested to um, some of my um, activist friends in various places that they might like to join us in London in holding coordinated monthly vigils for the closure of Guantanamo across the United States, in Mexico City, in various cities in Europe um and people have come on board so that's that's what we do and I'm really glad to say we started it in February um it's still going and um you know and I think it's an it's just one of those things that you do that is an important reminder um that it hasn't gone away that not everyone has forgotten um it doesn't involve huge numbers of people um but as we know you know there's a I think there's a huge difference between nobody turning up and a handful of people bothering to make their presence felt. Um, so that's what we do.
0: Well, and, and Andy, now that and I just mentioned it in the intro, but you know, more than half of the, the men remaining have been totally cleared to leave, and yet there they, there they are. They're still hanging around. How is that possible?
2: Well, it's possible, Chris, because they're not, they're not held under on any kind of legal basis. Um, You know, this may come as a surprise to people. (laughs) Um, You know, those of us who know the history of Guantanamo know that it was set up lawlessly to hold people indefinitely without charge or trial, with the intention of, um, you know, of also having some shoddy trials that would approve um, evidence derived from torture and swiftly lead to the execution of people that they said were terrorists. Um, That didn't happen. You know, the handful of people accused of serious crimes are caught up in an endless groundhog day of, um, pretrial hearings that, 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 that really doesn't function because the defense lawyers are doing their job, which is to expose what happened to their clients, which is torture in the CIA black sites. And the, and the, the prosecutors are trying to hide that. Um, so it just goes round and round, but the majority of the men held at Guantanamo have always been held indefinitely without charge or trial. Um, And, you know, and various administrative review processes have taken place over the years to assess whether, you know, groups of of military officers and intelligence people think that they should continue to be held. The only time this was broken was a two year period from 2008 to 2010, when the prisoners actually secured habeas corpus rights and lawyers were able to go before district court judges and present evidence. And in, you know, in um, in a few dozen cases, the judges ruled that the government had failed to establish in any in any way that these people had any meaningful connection to Al Qaeda or the Taliban and ordered them released. That golden period, that two year period, the only time the law properly applied at Guantanamo was brought to an end um, by a handful of right wing. Um, Appeals court judges who in a number of decisions changed the rules on habeas so that um, it was impossible um, for prisoners to have habeas corpus petitions granted. Um, And so um, for all that time since 2010, we've been back in this um, system where the only way that you can be approved for release from Guantanamo is through administrative review processes. And they're not legally binding. That's the crucial thing. So the government approves you for release from Guantanamo, having decided that you don't constitute a significant security threat. And, um, and then they find it difficult to release you or they can't really be bothered to process the paperwork. And there's no way that anyone can force them to do it. There is no judge that the prisoners can go to to say, excuse me, Your Honor, I've been approved for release from this hellhole, but I can't seem to get out. Can you nudge the government to do something about it? So they're entirely at the mercy of, um, how would you call it, the whim of the executive, I suppose, as it was when the prison was first set up. And that's what I've been trying to um, to, to make clear recently, really, is that um, these men, um, you know, extraordinarily the ones who've never been charged, even more than the ones who have been charged are still as fundamentally without any basic rights as they were when the prison first opened nearly 22 years ago.
0: Yeah, I guess I'd put it the political vagaries of the moment. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction, Andy, that that what has happened there has threatened those cherished legal uh, uh, precepts upon which Western civilization was built. You're English, and, and the main one is... Habeas corpus in the English founded in the English common law eight and something centuries ago. Now, yeah. for those that don't speak Latin, Andy, can you just briefly explain what habeas corpus is and and what it means to the law and to all of us to see this uh, vital um, uh, bit of legislation cast out so unceremoniously.
2: Well, it means you have the body and, um, and, you know, what it set up. The barons under King John, um, you know, insisted that you couldn't be slung in a dungeon at the whim of the executive, which was the king at the time, without, um, without a jury, a trial and a, a jury of your peers. So it's the fundamental guarantee that you're um, safe from executive overreach. Um, You know, which ironically is, you know, what the um, what the Americans who broke free from England did when they founded the United States in 1776 um, and have subsequently forgotten. I mean, it's just it's so absolutely crucial and it's always really been the cornerstone of why um, why I was interested in Guantanamo and why I refused to let the topic go, because. In a dictatorship, you can be thrown in a dungeon and no one cares about habeas corpus. In countries that claim to respect the law, you're only allowed to be deprived of your liberty through two means. One is that you're charged with a crime and put on trial, and the other is that you're a a prisoner of war in wartime. And what the Bush administration did was to um, throw all of this away and decide that what they had was a category of human beings with no rights whatsoever, who without any Um, review process whatsoever were determined to be enemy combatants um, who could be held indefinitely, as I say, without charge or trial and had no rights. Um, That's the fundamental situation at Guantanamo. And that's the really quite shocking truth about how four presidents in um, this this situation still hasn't been dealt with, um, because we're faced with this glaring problem of men approved for release, never charged, held for up to 22 years, who can't get out of that prison because they're not actually in any kind of legal process. They're just in some kind of administrative bubble.
0: Yes, and and while uh, the citizens of England, that green and pleasant land, were enjoying the protection of habeas corpus granted by King John, and he was the guy with the pointy beard, that you see in the Robin Hood movies, the very same, Uh, those Continentals that were not enjoying that right, like in Spain, would see under the Spanish Inquisition that nobody in England expects, that people were tortured, had their bits burned and pulled apart and so on for confessions. And that was the way they were doing law there at the same time.
2: Yes, the, the, early, the early precursor of the CIA, Black sites. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and this, it seems, now, now that would be cast away so that we would be moving headlong back in time through the future towards the past, this terrible past, a time before King John uh, granted habeas corpus under the pressure, as you describe, of the noble, uh, the noble peers of old England.
2: Yeah. And you know, and what I mean what's shameful about it Chris is that you know throughout all of this and um you know th- throughout Obama's years and Biden's years obviously we can forget about Trump. But all through this period the option has always been there for the um for the administration via the justice department to s- simply address this through the law by not challenging the habeas corpus petitions of men that it wants to release from Guantanamo. Um, Then they could be freed. Then they would be able to put pressure on the administration to actually go ahead and release them. Um, Then the United States could say that it was recognizing um, the laws that that had been so appallingly shunned and disposed of after 9-11. But they haven't done it. They've never done it. Um, they they um, they hate the courts wading in in any way to um, suggest that there's been any wrongdoing at Guantanamo. Hence the reason that we're stuck with these um, these administrative processes instead. You know, it was extremely significant this year that um, that a U.N. rapporteur got to visit Guantanamo for the first time. Um, it hadn't happened before because the U.S. would never guarantee that they um, wouldn't be kept under scrutiny and the special mandates are not allowed to go unless they're um, guaranteed that they can um, talk to the talk to prisoners freely. Um, and what she discovered, you know, really, I think, shocked the the administration. They thought they'd, um, you know, they thought they were the good guys because they'd finally come up with the circumstances to allow the U.N. to visit and that they would get a. You know, they get a pretty decent report for having improved conditions and doing their best. But what she found was that the circumstances in which the men are held haven't really in in really crucial ways haven't changed since the prison opened. So um, these men are kept under 24 hours surveillance. They are persistently dehumanized. They are still moved in heavy shackles around the prison whenever any whenever they're moved anywhere. They are not allowed proper, meaningful contact with their families. Um, All of this, you know, this is in addition to the whole broken legal process. But all of this in the treatment of the men, um, it's not even as though it's deliberate. It's that no one along the way um, bothered to scrutinize it properly to see that what was happening was still um, the same hysterical, brutal overreaction to the men that it was holding um as it was when the prison first opened so you know that report has been absolutely devastating and it's not the only one from the un this year um there have been um a number of um reports by um working groups on arbitrary detention and um, other aspects of the special mandates job which have also absolutely damned the united states for what it's doing but you know most people haven't even heard about this, Chris, um, you know, it's it's barely reported in the mainstream media when it is. You know, it would only be in a few outlets and it's here one minute and gone the next. Um, so, you know, I I, I I struggle to know what to say about about how we proceed with this, except to hope that, um, that the Biden administration administration is paying attention because um, They've got a year left now, really just over a year to try and resolve this to the best of their ability um, to be remembered with some fondness, at least on this issue, that they made uh, significant steps towards the closure of Guantanamo. And that does mean absolutely finding new homes for these men who are, are held and have been cleared for release. And the problem, I should say, Chris, is that the majority of them, cannot be sent back to their home countries, which in most cases is Yemen, because there is a ban imposed every year in the National Defense Authorization Act by Republicans, um, which Democrats agree with, um, of not sending people back to Yemen. And in fact, it isn't safe to send people back to Yemen. But they have to find third countries who will take them in, and no one wants to do it. Um, And unfortunately, what we know is that um, when Majid Khan, who, um, you know, as a young man in a very confused state had been drawn into Al-Qaeda and had actually worked as a courier transferring money that was used to fund terrorist plots. He was put on trial in the military commissions. He took a plea deal um, and eventually when his sentence came to an end, he had to be released. Now you understand with a plea deal in a functioning legal system or an attempt at a functioning legal system, the United States can't mess about. They had to find somewhere to send this man. He couldn't be sent back to Pakistan. He was resettled in Belize earlier this year, um, and he has been resettled there comfortably, as as is appropriate. But, you know, the United States spent money and exerted considerable diplomatic and political efforts to resettle this man. And yet, the men they're holding who are proof for release, but who are nobodies um they can't really be bothered to um go out their way to do anything to help them. It's just another example of the of the hideous moral mess that Guantanamo is.
0: Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Andy Worthington. Andy's a freelance investigative journalist, activist, author, photographer. Uh, he's His photojournalism project is the state of London. He's a filmmaker and songwriter, the lead singer and the main songwriter for the London-based band The Forefathers, whose music you can get at Bandcamp. He's the co-founder of the Closed Guantanamo Campaign. And he's the author of The Guantanamo Files, The Stories of the 774 Detainees in America's Illegal Prison and Stonehenge Celebration and Subversion and the Battle of the Beanfield. This is from your website. I'm just reading. I usually write this up, but I could just keep on going and then we'd be totally out of time. But we're, And I don't want to do that. Um, of course, Julian Assange would know all about uh, the lack of habeas corpus. He's been imprisoned in Belmarsh all this time. Uh, still, I don't know. He's still waiting to go to court somewhere, sometime um, but, Andy, we were talking off-air about uh, what's going on in Gaza right now. I was talking in the first half with uh, with lawyer Bill Geimer about this as well. And You mentioned the administrative detention or the admi- administrative procedures that's used in Guantanamo. We've seen this in Israel, too, this administrative detention where thousands of Palestinian men, women, and children have been taken, uh, kidnapped, essentially— off the streets, uh, they receive no trial. They don't even have charges in in many cases and are just held uh, as um, hostages. Yeah. When Ham- Hamas has said that part of the reason for their October 7th prison break and attack on uh, bases and residents near the wall area was to secure hostages as bargaining chips to get some of these people, or all of them, released. So here we see again, this idea of habeas corpus being thrown out the window, leading to this in the most I- extreme example. I've been watching Andy, with. We, we've been having demonstrations here in my town in Victoria and in other places in Canada, and we've seen it around the world. And in London, it's been absolutely stunning. I, I expect you uh, got pictures and were are taking part there. Can you tell us about it?
2: yeah I mean absolutely chris i mean the the only heartening thing to come out of all of this is the is the is the realisation that millions of people are prepared to get out on the streets, but even more than that, that tens of millions hundreds of millions, possibly even billions of people around the world out of our grand population of eight billion people, are more fundamentally appalled by what they are being presented with on their screens every day than they have been by anything in their lifetimes. Um, uh, you know, the systematic genocide of the, the Palestinian people in Gaza. Now, it, it hasn't formally been termed a genocide yet because obviously, the you know, human rights experts have to sift through evidence before they can make a pronouncement. But I would be extremely surprised if it isn't eventually um, judged to be a genocide because this is just out-and-out out slaughter of Palestine, Palestinian civilians day after day after day after day. It's absolutely horrendous. Um, the marches here in London have been massive. They have, of course, been, um, you know, almost entirely well-behaved. These are human beings coming together to defend humanity against what is something that I, that I think most of us, you know, have never seen because genocide is uh, is the darkness at the heart of humanity, which is supposed to take place um, away from prying eyes. This this is in in full view of the world, and this is I think the um, you know a sign of the absolute moral sickness of the Zionist project um, that they're so unaware of how vile their actions are that they're even prepared to show it to the whole world. Um, it's just—it's beyond disgusting, really.
0: Well, and the the effects—and I talked with Bill Geimer a little bit about this too—but the effects that this is having on our countries, on, on Canada, on Britain, France, the G7, uh, our uh, Canada's uh, foreign minister. Uh, Melanie Jolie, Genocide Jolie, as we like to call her here, uh, is standing in front of uh, the world press at the G7 and saying that uh, the G7 countries are united in our condemnation of Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel, and we support uh, humanitarian pauses uh, in the bombing. She means just for a moment, uh, and uh, reiterate our support for the war in Ukraine and uh, and blah blah blah. You know, but what we we see here is not not only is is it being presented in front of our eyes in the media but our own governments are the parliament in canada is 100 there's not a single member standing in opposition saying stop this right now no uh, what's it like in britain
2: well not one at all chris that's extraordinary no here we've got nearly 100 MPs that are or maybe even over 100 MPs. So about one sixth of the parliament is calling for a ceasefire, um, you know, which isn't enough. But um, the problem that we're that we're facing here, of course, is that, um, is that both of our major parties support it. And, you know, and the problem in the United States, of course, is that both major parties support it. So, we're obviously we're in an interesting time politically because um, because um, both the Labour Party here, which hopes to win the next election and Joe Biden in the in the US, who hopes to win the next election, could lose um, because of Muslim voters and because of um, uh, other people who remember their humanity, um, who simply won't vote for them. I don't know what's going to happen. I think here in the UK, there's an opportunity. Um, from the um, from the exiled um, members of the Labour Party, people like Jeremy Corbyn, who've been kicked out, um, and also I would suggest in in constituencies with a high Muslim population that independents should stand, and that you know that they they may very well be able to um, defeat um, either Labour or Tory challengers, which would you know that would be interesting. What what about if we had dozens and dozens of independent decent left wing MPs, um, not aligned to a party, but possibly then after the next election, holding a significant, you know, sway of, of uh, maybe holding power actually between two parties, neither of which have a majority. I don't know. I mean, I've been thinking about all of these things, but I think what's absolutely clear, and I don't know how much this is going to go away, is that there are so many of us um, who cannot, embrace any of these people who have crossed the red line. Any of these people who are endorsing what is happening in Gaza right now have lost their humanity. They've lost their right to um, to represent us in any kind of way. I mean, this isn't this is not just in the political sphere. This is in, you know, the entertainment sphere. This is um, this is all kinds of people who seem oblivious to the fact or don't care that they've crossed a line that involves our, our essential humanity. I think it's as really as profound and as clear as that. But then you know, but then we don't know what the future holds, do we? I mean, you know, we we are apparently you know persistently going to be failed by our leaders, who you know who who you know are basically saying, well, ten thousand isn't enough. It's like, well, what is then twenty thousand? I mean, nothing on this scale has. Um, has happened certainly not ever in public like this before. What does Israel, Israel hasn't got a plan Israel's plan is a is a mixture of genocide and forced displacement But it's forced displacement plan has a problem, which is that Egypt controls the door and doesn't want you know The unthinkable to happen, which is that Israel gets to expel 2.3 million people somewhere else because um because it wants to win its outrageous 75 year old battle to steal the whole of the country from the Palestinians who were there before i don't know how it's going to be resolved nobody does israel hasn't got an actual plan here all they're doing at the moment um is just is is indulging um to the max the genocidal fantasies on which the state of israel was founded 75 years ago Um, And the world is still allowing it. But um, it's not over by a long way, Chris.
0: Well, how about that resilience? Uh, Is there an organization in London? I mean, will people be out every Saturday? Will we see these? uh, I mean, I imagine the numbers will just dwindle and dwindle. That I fear, although the last demo here in my town was the biggest yet. But I I fear that it's going to just peter out.
2: It's Armistice Day on Saturday. So the government Mm -hmm. tried to get the police to ban it, which they're allowed to do if they fear serious unrest. And the police turned around and said, we don't fear serious unrest when it's not Mm -hmm. our position to ban it, according to the law. Um, And so it's going to go ahead, but um, it will be bigger than ever. And um, it would be even bigger than ever had it been banned. But that might have... Who knows what it would have happened in, in in that case? I mean, at the moment, I'm just extremely pleased that the police has been. I mean, the the, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, our Home Secretary Suella Brotherman, who is genuinely, you know, evil. Yeah. Um, she she refers to the Palestinian marches as hate marches. That the, and and he was asked about it, and he said. She appears to have chosen two words randomly and put them together. Yeah. Devastating, Barb. That was at, uh, at her. Well,
0: I, I don't. I mean, yeah, it's it's funny, but I don't think it's true. I obviously she was thought very carefully about using these tropes. Uh, did you know, Andy? And we're fast out of time, but there was somebody actually arrested in Calgary. I read uh, here within the last couple of days at a demo because they were chanting they were chanting or somewhere I don't have the details but they were chanting from the river to the sea and were arrested supposedly because that was an anti uh, uh threat and so they were- this is in Canada in Canada Yeah
2: yeah well i mean this stuff has to be resisted so massively chris because otherwise this is, these are, this is the opening for um for uh, for types of fascism in our countries coming from people who don't believe that they're fascists. I mean, you know, how appropriate uh, when what they're doing is the bidding of the Israeli government who are fascists, but don't see that they're fascists. I mean, it's, you know, these are these are difficult and dangerous times. But we, you know, we have to stand up for our, our rights for freedom of speech. And we have to stand up for people who are getting sacked for sending out a tweet saying that they were opposed to genocide for example which is happening all over the place i mean in up-
0: canada yeah that's happening here too well it's just a the, the greasy skid to a, the democracy's oblivion and uh, okay well andy we're we're fast out of time um andyworthington.co.uk you can go to his site to read his articles see his pictures get uh connections to his music and his band the the forefathers and support his work uh it's been ongoing for many many years. Uh thanks a lot uh for coming on Andy and thanks to William S Geimer as well. I look forward to our next uh, discussion though I fear the topic as ever.
2: Uh, yeah well. <laughs> You're not running a good news show generally, though, are you, Chris? But, you know, it would, be, it would be nice for the world to slightly come back from the brink of where it is at the moment, because this is really kind of worse than anything I've seen.
0: Agreed. Yeah, me too. And I've been at this for quite a while as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. I enjoyed, I enjoyed being with you.
0: Until the next time then, Andy.
2: Cheers, Chris. Bye-bye. Adios.
0: That's all I got for this week.
2: Their message always to everybody through all their advertising, all their PR, everything is, we are your friends. And it's like, no, you are not our friends. Friends are not people. Bottom line is how much profit they can make out of you. It is completely different.
0: Guerrilla Radio, knowing who our real friends are since
2: 1999. We're running out of time to put out a fire.